the brother of a fellow in the Bible by the name of James. Um, there's a couple of references to uh, other folks that are named, uh, and in other books they call him Judas, uh, not the Judas that was the disciple that turned from the Lord, but uh, more than likely was, uh, he refers to himself as the brother of James, more than likely the brother of uh, James who wrote the book of James, who also claimed to be the brother of Christ or was the brother of Christ. So a very good possibility that Jude was also a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's not a certainty of that, but there's a pretty good indication that he could have been, uh, along with James, the stepbrother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, out of all of Paul's epistles, there are, in all of them that we know of, there's either a direct or an indirect uh, addressing of the issue of false teachers and false doctrine. It seems like that has been kind of a repetitive theme as we've gone through these books in the New Testament. And it's interesting to me that almost all of the uh, the epistle letters that were written, um, whether they be from Paul or Peter or John or Jude or James, even the writer of Hebrews, uh, anything after the Gospels and uh, Acts, um, we find that almost all of the New Testament, uh, there is some indication in ev- almost every book, it seems like, uh, regarding this issue of beware of false doctrines, false teachers, beware of um, this stuff creeping in uh, without you even knowing it. And the reason for this is because the importance of having sound doctrine was so vitally important to the early church, um, the apostles especially, as they would hear uh, records and accounts of some of the churches that they had either ministered to or had been responsible for starting to hear that they had departed from the doctrine that had been taught to the church in the early days was a huge issue. And I would say this, that if God chose to make the vast majority of our New Testament a warning against false teachers and false doctrine, then I would say this, that God believes sound doctrine is of utmost importance, uh, vitally important. And I know we harp on this and we, we teach on it a lot, but you say, and you may say, okay, I got it, Pastor, you can move on. But if God makes a big deal out of it, I think we need to make a big deal out of it. And if God spends a lot of time teaching on this, and I think it needs to be taught on a lot of times. Um, and so uh, it's very interesting to see how Paul emphasizes throughout his letters uh, this thing of false doctrine, false teaching. Even when we get into First and Second Peter, First, uh, Second, Third John, even John deals with uh, false teachers in each of his letters, um, and uh, but really, probably the book that it would most close that Jude would most closely associate with would be Second Peter. Second Peter and Jude are very closely intertwined. There's a lot of similarities with them, um, and a very good possibility that they were written pretty much in about the same time frame, somewhere between probably 66 A.D. and maybe around 75 or 80 A.D., somewhere in that range because there was so much apostasy in the church at the time. What was taking place during the time of the writing of Jude was the fact that they were creeping in, and this is the phrase that was used, that they were creeping in unaware. (coughs) And the fact that the church and those that were uh, attending, the believers that were there, were taking the things that were being taught at face value. In other words, they they were trusting the teacher rather than the source of the teaching. 
And I would say this, that the important thing in the day that you and I live is that we trust the source of the teaching rather than the teacher. Because the teacher is, uh, we ought to make that at least a higher, I don't want to say you don't trust the teacher ever, but you never take his word over the source of the teaching. Let me put it that way. Because teachers can either intentionally try to be misleading, or they can unintentionally be wrong. But the source of the truth, which is our Bible, will never be wrong. And it is important that we, that we put and we elevate the faith and the trust that we put in the source much higher than we ever put in the teacher himself. We hope and we pray that the teachers that God uses will be led and, and uh, directed by the Holy Spirit, that there won't be uh, a lot of error given in their teaching. But if there ever comes a point where there is a question between the two, we always err to the side of the source. We say that that is the utmost important thing. So uh, Jude kind of kind of speaks of this because the church was was following after the teachers rather than the, the source of Scripture that had been previously taught to them by the apostles <coughs> or by, by Scripture that they had in their hands. <coughs> Excuse me. Jude is a very short book, just one chapter. It's only 25 verses, but believe it or not, it can be broken into four sections. And so we're going to look at these four sections real quick. In verses 1 to 4, uh, Jude spends some time kind of uh, greeting and establishing the purpose of the letter. And verses 1 and 2, he speaks about who he's writing, writing to, and he uh, asks for a blessing for them. And let's read those and see what it is, who he's writing to, and what he's asking for them. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So he's talking to those uh, who are sanctified, who are preserved, and who are called. And by the way, when we get saved, all three of those things happen in our lives. The Holy Spirit begins a work of sanctification, a cleansing. He begins to give, a, give us a conviction. Uh, against our sin that we didn't used to have and uh, causes us to start living in a way we didn't used to live. And uh, a lot of people, before they get saved, they say, well, I don't want to get saved because I'll have to give up this and I'll have to give up that. Can I tell you this? When you get saved, uh, your whole view changes. You don't look at that as giving it up. You look at that as something that you're progressing in, you're growing in. And God changes that about you. In fact, Paul said it this way. He said, those things that I used to have in my life, he said, I count them but dumb. He said, that, that I may gain, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, and uh, being made conformable unto Him. Paul was, Paul was excited about the opportunity that God had afforded him to be able to put those things behind him and begin to press toward the mark. And when you get saved, before you get saved, you look at that as... Well, I'm still going to want these things, and I'm going to have to grudgingly give them up and be like, well, now I'm saved, I have to do this. No, no, when you get saved, God changes your heart. And all of a sudden, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is not something we look at and say, okay, if, you, if you're convicting me, Lord, I have to do it. No, that's not the way we look at it. In fact, we, we even begin to have the desire for the Holy Spirit to show us things and say, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. And boy, there's no greater joy in the Christian life than the sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does. It's a very difficult work. It's one that the flesh nature wars against a lot. But when you get victory over something in your life that the Holy Spirit has helped you with and enabled you to get victory over, there's no greater joy in your life than that. 
and uh, to, to know that uh, you're able to walk in truth. And so we are sanctified when we get saved <coughs> by the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing work, excuse me, <coughs> of sanctification. And then we're preserved, and I'm thankful for this. I was talking with someone on Friday about the, the, uh, preserva- the preserving work of the Lord Jesus and how that He is the surety uh, of our salvation. He's the guarantor of it. And the fact that uh, in order for us to get to heaven, uh, God has to have perfection. And, of course, none of us are perfect. So the only way we get to heaven is if Christ gives us His perfection and puts it on our account. And uh, He does that, and He preserves us. He sustains us because the truth is, even after the day we trusted Christ as our Savior, there's still going to be moments where we're going to sin. We're going to fail God. We're not going to do all that we should do. And then sometimes we're going to do some things that we shouldn't do. But God gives us that perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ on our account. And so Christ does a preserving work. And then uh, He calls every Christian to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, some people say, well, do uh, you get called to preach? I would say this, every Christian has a calling on their life. And God tells us what that is in Scripture. We are called to walk in the Spirit. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. These are things that God has called us to. These are the purposes He's given to us in our life. And so all of us have been called. And so He, he, he addresses them in verse 1. He says, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. And so He asks for three things. <coughs> he asks for mercy, He asks for peace, and He asks for love. Then He kind of switches from this thing of salvation who He's addressing things to. And He switches gears in verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved... When I give all diligence, uh, gave all diligence to write unto you uh, of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so he said, I'd love to talk to you more about the salvation aspect, but I'm having to stop and interrupt this so that I can address something that is of concern. The concern was that you earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Verse number 4 for there are certain men, and I want you to underline, if you're in the habit of underlining, or at least make mental note of this phrase, crept in unawares. Crept in unawares. Now, some uh, false teachers and false prophets are easy to spot. And I've said this before. The, the false teachers that are easy to see are easy to see. But the ones that are not easy to see are not easy to see. And I know that sounds overly simplistic. But I want you to understand that there are false teachers that creep in that will look like they're not false teachers. They might even sound like they're not false teachers. What is the determining uh, standard that we use? How do we know then? If they creep in and we're unaware of it, <coughs> is there something we can go to to find out if they're a false teacher or not? Well, the Scriptures. Are they teaching something extra-biblical, something that's not found in Scripture? Or are they teaching you something that is in contradiction with Scripture? Or are they teaching you something that has been taken out of context in Scripture? And again, then you have to find out, are they doing it intentionally and to subvert you? Or are they doing it simply because they just don't know any better and they need to be confronted and you need to speak the truth in love to them and try to correct them? Uh, but suffice to say that these folks were those that had crept in unawares. And this is who Jude is, is warning the believers about. 
He said there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now, I want you to listen to that phrase for me. I'm going to read it one more time, because sometimes when we read through things, if we don't fully understand words or we don't understand what that phrase is saying, we kind of just move on. But I don't want you to miss this, because it's important in identifying the false teachers. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Paul said it to the Corinthian church two different times. He said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. In other words, we have security in the Lord Jesus Christ when we trust Him as our Savior, and there is nothing that you or I can do to lose that salvation once we're saved. It's impossible to do. We are secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we lose our salvation then we would have to say, since we are secured by Him, that it was a failure on His part to keep us saved. And of course, the Lord Jesus cannot fail in that. So you will not ever lose your salvation. However, Paul addresses several times in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Romans. In fact, if you take time to read through chapter 6 through about chapter 8 of Romans, you'll find that Paul addresses this quite strongly. That uh, should we continue in sin, that grace may abound? Just because I have liberty, should I just go about doing all this stuff and, and, and not worrying about it and, and just following after the lust of the flesh? No, no. We now are to walk in the Spirit. And what he's referring to here is that these ungodly men are marked by their character <coughs> of turning the grace that God gives to us into lascivious living. In other words, saying, I've got the grace of God. I can live however I want. And by the way, we're living in a world that is unbelievably teaching this doctrine. Not only in word, but in deed. In our churches, in our country today, we have people who say, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, I'm saved, it does not matter how I live, and I'm going to get out here, and I'm just going to enjoy the, the pleasures of sin because God's grace is sufficient. And it is. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But what marks the character of an ungodly man that is a false teacher is one who will go out here and say, you've got the grace of God, don't worry how you live. No, no. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is that wantonness, that lustful uh, desires that you follow after. And you say, I, I want to live according to what my body wants or my mind wants or my thoughts want. And to the point of, of going into the... the uh, immoral side of things and the point of uh, going into the wantonness of the flesh. <coughs> and Jude refers to them as ungodly men. They took the grace of God and they turned it into lasciviousness. Notice this in verse 4. <coughs> and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives some characteristics. He identifies some things about these, these false uh, teachers. In fact, in verse number 5 through 16 is our second section of the book as he goes into very clear detail of describing who these false teachers are. And uh, in verse number, uh, verse number 5, he says, I will therefore, based upon these observations of verses 3 and 4, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance. Now, that's an important thing because most people that are saved have at one point or another understood who false teachers are. 
And so Jude is not telling them anything new here. He's reiterating some things by way of remembrance. He said, I therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, even of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an what? Example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he gives us three illustrations. By the way, they're very similar to the three illustrations that Peter gave in Second Peter, which is why there's such a close parallel between that book and this book. But we have three, three illustrations that are given here that the, the people who were taken out of Egypt by God's grace, that when they got out in the wilderness and they rebelled, God spared them not. He judged them. When, when the angels, the Bible says in verse 6, that kept not their first estate, when they rebelled, God judged them. In verse number 7, when Sodom and Gomorrah would not repent and rebelled, God judged them. And what Jude is trying to get to is the certainty of God's judgment coming upon these men that are teaching false doctrine. As sure as God judged those that came out of Egypt and rebelled, as sure as God re- judged the angels that rebelled, as sure as God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and God judged them, God's going to judge these as well. And He's giving this warning as an illustration of the certainty of the coming judgment of God on these ungodly men that are teaching, that have crept in unawares and are teaching false doctrine. In verse number 8, he goes on to say this, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, <coughs> durst not bring a railing against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. <coughs> But these speak evil of those things, which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Uh, this uh, it's spelled C-O-R-E here, but it's in reference to Korah of the Old Testament uh, that rose up in rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. And God opened the ground up and swallowed them and, and all of his followers. And so again, he uses three illustrations from the Old Testament. Cain, who was judged, uh, Balaam, who was judged, and Kor, who was judged. Again, the, the, for their, uh, their, their rebellion, their departing from the Lord, uh, their rejecting of the Lord and his doctrine. And so he uses this. And then he gives uh, five uh, metaphors that are taken from uh, nature uh, as illustrations, or as, as uh, the best way to use the words, as a metaphor for the type of people that these false teachers are. In verse 12, he says, "These this, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast uh, with you, feeding themselves without fear." And so we have those that uh, are have spots in their feast without charity uh, of their uh, spots in their feast of charity. But then he goes on to say about them that they are clouds without water. What is a cloud without water? Everybody, anybody ever seen a cloud without water? No. 
because it's nothing. There's, there's no substance to it. Uh, a cloud is water vapor. So the use of this phrase and this metaphor here is to show the vanity of these, these men, that there's nothing to them. There's no substance there. They're clouds without water, carried about with uh, the, uh, about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead. So again, trees that they have no purpose. They're not, they're not accomplishing the purpose of their life. Raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame. And speaking here of the, the foam that gathers on the top of the sea waves as it goes. That foam is, is as nothing. It's, just, it's a lot of fluff. But it's not the sea. I've never known anybody to drown in sea foam yet. But they do drown in the sea. Why? Because the foam has no substance, has no bearing, has no power. Has no strength. And he talks about the wandering stars. To whom is reserved the black, blackness of darkness forever. Well, what's the purpose of a wandering star? A wandering star doesn't serve us any purpose. You've got to understand, in this day, the stars were very, very important to people. They navigated, they traveled uh, across deserts and across land by the, by the fact that the stars did not change. And a wandering star would cause somebody to get lost. It caused somebody to, to go to the wrong direction or go to the wrong place. He refers to them as wandering stars. They give misdirection. They're not to be trusted. Verse 14, he says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that, the, uh, that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he again speaks and quotes Enoch, who apparently had written some things. We don't have it in our Bible, but apparently there were some writings from Enoch where God had given him some prophecy. And Jude quotes that here. And he talks about the fact that, that Enoch wrote about this when God uh, had prophesied or given a prophecy about these things. That there is going to come a day where these ungodly men who commit ungodly deeds are going to be judged by God for the purpose of understanding their ungodliness and, uh, and how important uh, it is for the, the folks at this point in time that Jude is writing to to understand that God takes this matter very, very seriously. This is not something to be trifled with in the church. They've crept in unawares. And so the charge that uh, Jude gives to the believers is found now in verses 17 to 23. This, this defense against these false teachers. But beloved, so now he's, he's redirecting from explaining who these false teachers are describing them to him, but he's now addressing directly those that he's writing to. He says, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. In other words, guys, this is not anything new. We should not be surprised by ungodly teachers. We should beware of them. We should be disappointed in them. We should refute them. We should certainly give a defense against them. But we should not be surprised because we've been told. We know that they're coming. 
And it's not a matter of if they're going to come. It's a matter of when they're going to come. And if they are, when they are, are we going to recognize them as such? The only way we can do that is by what Jude charges these believers to do. And I want you to follow with it and find out what he says here. In verse 19, he says, These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the capital S here, spirit. These false teachers are not saved. They do not have the Spirit of God living in them. And by the way, we've already found in the Bible where the Bible tells us that even that Satan will cause even his ministers to appear as ministers of light. He's going to make them look just like a preacher of the gospel. He's going to have people, and the Bible talks about that there are going to be many that are going to follow after them. And that's a, that's a sad commentary. Many of them are going to follow these false teachers. Why? Because they're, they're going to sound good. They're going to look good. They may have large ministries that look successful to someone. They may have large amounts of money coming in and talk about how it's God's blessing. And yet they are ministers of darkness that are made to look like ministers of light. So he talks about these folks in verse 19 that have not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, notice what he says here. This is how you defend against this. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying, in the Holy Ghost. There is to be a building up of yourselves. Uh, it's written this way elsewhere in Scripture. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose of evangelists, pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets is for the perfecting of the saints. To assist with them growing. To assist with them maturing in the Christian life. This is the defense that Jude is saying that you need to take in order to defend against these false teachers. In order to keep them from creeping in unaware, you need to grow up in your most holy faith, build up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. <coughs> we are supposed to uh, grow and mature in our Christian life, we have found that the way to do that by Scripture is to study the Word. The best defense against false doctrine is knowing right doctrine. The best way to keep from a teacher creeping in unaware is to be aware of what good teaching is. And then when you hear that person teach something, something's going to go off in your mind and you're going to be like, that doesn't sound right. I better go to the Bible and find out. Is that true or is that not true? And this is highly, highly important, not only to Jude and John and Peter and Paul and James. This is important to God. Highly important to God. In so much that the vast majority of our New Testament Scripture is given to the awareness, the warning against, and the instruction to defend against false doctrine and false teachers. The majority of our Scriptures. It is that important to God. And verse number 22, he says, And some, saved with fear, I'm sorry, some having compassion, making a difference. And others, saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now, you could, a lot of people use these verses referring to unsaved people. And I don't think that that's a bad application of them. 
However, I don't know that within the context of this letter, that's what it's speaking about here. I believe that it's very strongly teaching about these folks that have been ungodly in their teaching. We talked a few weeks ago about two different types of false teachers and how we're to respond to each one of them. Some of them are naive and spreading false doctrine without realizing it. And I believe those are ones we ought to have compassion on, speak the truth in love, and make a difference in their life to teach them. (coughs) But then there are those that are uh, wicked and ungodly and deceitful, and I believe we are to rebuke them. The Bible is very clear on that. And that we are to save them with fear, sharing with them what Jude had spoken about, that they're going to be judged by God if they don't turn from this, if they don't trust Christ as their Savior, if they don't get this thing right, they're going to be judged by God. And I think this is what these verses are referring to, again, because of the context of the letter. He's warning these folks. He's telling the believers, here's how you defend against these false teachers. And then verses 24 and 25, he gives a doxology here, which is just a, you know, we we, we call a, uh, we have some uh, hymns in our hymnal that we call the doxologies. And... uh, Different ones. And a doxology is nothing more than a form that gives praise and worship to God. And this is what Jude does in his last two verses. He says, rather than giving a normal salutation like he did with others, you know, tell so-and-so hi and tell him I'll see you shortly, he goes right into a doxology. He says, now unto him who that is able to keep you from falling and to prevent you uh, present you faultless before... Uh, the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. I love these verses. Look what he says in verse 24. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling. Who's Jude writing to here? He's writing to those believers that are sanctified, that are preserved, and that are called. He's warning to them, and the purpose of his writing to them is to warn them of those false teachers that had crept in unawares. How to, how to recognize them. And then what to do to defend against them. And then as he gets to the very end of it, lest these men think, these believers that he's writing to think, that they can accomplish all of this work on their own. He then turns to the Lord. He says, Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling. Can I tell you this? The greatest source you and I have to defend against false doctrine and false teachers is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him for His strength to keep us from falling. To give us that wisdom. To give us that understanding of true doctrine and right doctrine to strengthen us for the battle. Jews' charge to the folks was that they would earnestly contend for the faith. And God is able to give us the strength to do that. Unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. Some people think, boy, when I get to heaven, we're going to praise God for all of eternity. Why not praise Him now? He's just as great now as He's ever been. He's just as great now as He's ever going to be. 
If we're going to be praising Him throughout the endless ages of eternity, why aren't we praising Him now? Because He is the same God. May God help us to open our eyes and see Him as He really is. And I hope that will help you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. Lord, a short letter, but so powerful, so powerful. So many things in it that instruct us and guide us. I pray that You would help us to learn from it.